The Intellectual Life, Chapter 1. The Intellectual Vocation. 1. The intellectual has a sacred call. 2. The intellectual does not stand alone. 3. The intellectual belongs to his time. Vocation. We refer to those who intend to make intellectual work their life, whether they are entirely free to give themselves up to study, or whether, though engaged in some calling, they hold happily in reserve as a supplement of their activity and as a reward, the development and deepening of their mind. I say the deepening in order to set aside the idea of a superficial tincture of knowledge. A vocation is not fulfilled by vague reading and a few scattered writings. It requires penetration and continuity and methodical effort so as to attain a fullness of development which will correspond to the call of the spirit and to the resources that it has pleased him to bestow on us. This call is not to be taken for granted. To start precipitately on a road which one could not tread with a firm step would be merely to prepare the way for disillusionment. Everyone has the duty to work, and after a first early and toilsome training, no one acts wisely if he lets his mind fall gradually back into its primitive ignorance. But the effortless maintenance of what one has acquired is one thing, and it is quite another to consolidate from the foundations upwards a sum of knowledge recognized as merely provisional seem to be simply and solely a starting point. This second state of mind is that of one who has the vocation. It implies a serious resolution. The life of study is austere and imposes grave obligations. It pays, it pays richly, but it exacts an initial outlay that few are capable of. The athletes of the mind, like those of the playing field, must be prepared for privations long training, a sometimes superhuman tenacity. We must give ourselves from the heart if truth is to give itself to us. Truth serves only its slaves. It must not be entered on without long self-examination. The intellectual vocation is like every other. It is written in our instincts, in our powers, in a sort of inner impulse of which reason must judge. Our dispositions are like the chemical properties which determine for every body the combinations into which that body can enter. A vocation is something that cannot be had for the asking. It comes from heaven and from our first nature. The whole point is to be docile to God and to oneself as soon as they have spoken. Understood in this sense, Disraeli is saying that you may do what you please provided it really pleases you, contains a great meaning. Our liking, if correlated to our fundamental tendencies and to our aptitudes, is an excellent judge. If St. Thomas could say that pleasure characterizes functions and may serve to classify men, he must be led to conclude that pleasure can also reveal our vocation. Only we must search down into the depths where liking and the spontaneous impulse are linked up with the gifts of God and his providence. Besides the immense interest of realizing oneself in one's fullness, 
The investigation into an intellectual vocation has a more general interest which no one may disregard. Christianized humanity is made up of various personalities, no one of which can refuse to function without impoverishing the group and without depriving the eternal Christ of a part of his kingdom. Christ reigns by unfolding himself in men. Every life of one of his members is a characteristic moment of his duration. Every individual man and Christian is an instance, incommunicable, unique, and therefore necessary, of the extension of the spiritual body. If you are designated as a light bearer, do not go and hide under the bushel, the gleam or the flame expected from you in the house of the Father of all. Love truth and its fruits of life for yourself and for others. Devote to study and to the profitable use of study the best part of your time and your heart. All roads but one road are bad roads for you, since they diverge from the direction in which your action is expected and required. Do not prove faithless to God, to your brethren and to yourself by rejecting a sacred call. That presupposes you to come to the intellectual life with unselfish motives, not through ambition or foolish vanity. The jingling bells of publicity tempt only frivolous minds. Ambition offends eternal truth by subordinating truth to itself. Is it not a sacrilege to play with the questions that dominate life and death, with mysterious nature, with God, to achieve some literary or philosophical celebrity at the expense of the true and independently of the true? Such aims, and especially the first mentioned, would not sustain the seeker. His effort would speedily be seen to slacken his vanity to fall back on some empty satisfaction with no care for the reality of things. But it presupposes also that to the acceptance of the end, you add the acceptance of the means. Otherwise, there would be no real obedience to your vocation. Many people would like to possess knowledge. A vague aspiration turns the eyes of the multitude towards horizons that the greater number admire from afar off, as the victim of gout or asthma looks up to the eternal snows. To get something without paying for it is the universal desire, but it is the desire of cowardly hearts and weak brains. The universe does not respond to the first murmured request, and the light of God does not shine under your study lamp unless your soul asks for it with persistent effort. You are consecrated by your vocation. Will what truth wills. Consent for the sake of truth to bestir yourself, to take up your abode within its proper realm, to organize your life, and realizing your inexperience, to learn from the experience of others. If youth but knew, the young above all need this warning. Science in the broad meaning of the word scientia is knowledge through causes, but actively as to its attainment, it is a creation by causes. We must recognize and adopt the causes of knowledge, then provide them and not defer attention to the foundations of our building until the moment of putting up the roof. In the first three years after early studies, when the ground of our intelligence has been newly turned up 
and a seed sown, what splendid tillage could be undertaken. That is the time that will never come again, the time that we shall have to live on by and by. What it is we shall be, for we can hardly put down new roots. The future is always the heir of the past. The penalty for neglecting at the right time to prepare it is to live on the surface of things. Let each one think of that, while thinking may be of some avail. How many young people, with the pretension to become workers, miserably waste their days, their strength, the vigor of their intelligence, their ideal. Either they do not work, there is time enough, or they work badly, capriciously, without knowing what they are, nor where they want to go, nor how to get there. Lectures, reading, choice of companions, the proper proportion of work and rest, of solitude and activity, of general culture and specialization, the spirit of study, the art of picking out and utilizing data gained, some provisional output which will give an idea of what the future work is to be, the virtues to be acquired and developed. Nothing of all that is thought out and no satisfactory fulfillment will follow. What a difference, supposing equal resources, between the man who understands and looks ahead and the man who proceeds at haphazard. Genius is long patience, but it must be organized and intelligent patience. One does not need extraordinary gifts to carry some work through. Average superiority suffices. The rest depends on energy and wise application of energy. It is as with a conscientious workman, careful and steady at his task. He gets somewhere, while an inventive genius is often merely an embittered failure. What I have just said is true of everyone, but I apply it especially to those who know that they have at their disposal only a part of their life, the least part, in which to give themselves to the labors of the mind. They, more than others, must be men consecrated by their vocation. What they cannot spread out over all their years, they must concentrate in a small space. The special asceticism and the heroic virtue of the intellectual worker must be their daily portion. But if they consent to this double self-offering, I tell them in the name of the God of truth not to lose courage. If genius is not necessary for production, Still less is it necessary to have entire liberty. What is more, liberty presents pitfalls that rigorous obligations may help us to avoid. A stream narrowly hemmed in by its banks will flow more impetuously. The discipline of some occupation is an excellent school. It bears fruit in the hours of studious leisure. The very constraint will make you concentrate better. You will learn the value of time. You will take eager refuge in those rare hours during which, the claims of duty satisfied, you can turn to your ideal and enjoy the relaxation of some chosen activity after the labor imposed by the hard necessity of getting a livelihood. The worker who thus finds in a fresh effort the reward of previous effort, who prizes it as a miser prizes his hoard, is usually passionately devoted to his ideal. He cannot be turned aside 
from a purpose thus consecrated by sacrifice. If his progress seems slower, he is capable of getting farther. Like the poor drudging tortoise, he does not dawdle, he persists, and in a few years' time, he will have outstripped the indolent hare whose agile movements were the envy of his own lumbering gait. The same is true of the isolated worker, deprived of intellectual resources and stimulating society, buried in some little provincial spot where he seems condemned to stagnate, exiled far from rich libraries, brilliant lectures, and eagerly responsive public, possessing only himself and obliged to draw solely on that inalienable capital. He must not lose courage either, though he have everything against him. Let him but keep possession of himself and be content with that. An ardent heart has more chance of achieving something than a crammed head abusing the opportunities of great cities. Here again, strength may spring from difficulty. It is in the steep mountain passes that one bends and strains. Level paths allow one to relax, and a state of uncontrolled relaxation quickly becomes fatal. The thing of all is will. will. To will to be somebody, to achieve something, to be even now in desire that somebody recognizable by his ideal. Everything else always settles itself. There are books everywhere, and only a few are necessary. Society, stimulation, one finds these in spirit, in one's solitude. The great are there, present to those who call on them, and the great ages behind impel the ardent thinker forward. As to lectures, those who can have them do not follow them, or follow them but ill. If they have not in themselves at need the wherewithal to do without such fortunate help. As to the public, if it sometimes stimulates, it often disturbs, scatters the mind, and by going to pick up two pennies in the street, you may lose a fortune. Solitude is better, for there every seed produces a hundredfold, and every ray of sunlight suffuses the whole landscape with autumnal gold. Of Aquinas, as he was coming to settle in Paris, and described the great city in the distance, said to the brother who was with him, Brother, I would give all that for the commentary of Chrysostom on St. Matthew. When one feels like that, it does not matter where one is, nor what resources one has. One is stamped with the seal. One is of the elect of the spirit. One has only to persevere and to trust life as it is ruled for us by God. You young man who understand this language and to whom the heroes of the mind seem mysteriously to beckon, but who fear to lack the necessary means, listen to me. Have you two hours a day? Can you undertake to keep them jealously, to use them ardently? And then, being of those who have authority in the kingdom of God, can you drink the chalice which these pages would wish to make you savor the exquisite and bitter taste? If so, have confidence. Nay, rest in quiet certainty. If you are compelled to earn your living, at least you will earn it without sacrificing, as so many do, the liberty of your soul.
If you are alone, you will but be more violently thrown back on your noble purposes. Most great men followed some calling. Many have declared that the two hours I postulate suffice for an intellectual career. Learn to make the best use of that limited time. Plunge every day of your life into the spring which quenches and yet ever renews your thirst. Do you want to have a humble share in perpetuating wisdom among men, in gathering up the inheritance of the ages, in formulating the rules of the mind for the present time, in discovering facts and causes, in turning men's wandering eyes towards first causes and their hearts towards supreme ends, in reviving, if necessary, some dying flame, in organizing the propaganda of truth and goodness, that is the lot reserved for you. It is worth a little extra sacrifice. It is worth steadily pursuing with jealous passion. The study and practice of what Per Gratri calls living logic, that is, the development of our mind, the human word, by contact direct or indirect with the spirit and the divine word, that serious study and persevering practice will give you entry into the wondrous sanctuary. You will be of those who grow, who enrich themselves, and who make ready to receive magnificent gifts. You too, one day, if God so wills, will have a place in the assembly of noble minds.